Dotnet Rocks episode 881 with guest John Skeet. Recorded live Wednesday, June 12th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklins.net, makers of GesturePack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePak.com. And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app, available now for Windows Phone, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Hey, Richard. Hey, Carl. Here we are again. At NDC in Oslo. This is the biggest one they've ever had? 1,800 people? Yeah, something like that. Plus all of the us and the uh, speakers. And it must be almost 2,000 people here. And we ought to say that Herding Code is right next door. They have a fishbowl here, too. Yeah, just for fun. uh, uh, K. Scott Allen and John Galloway are here. So I guess what... We should tell the story. I don't know if this story is boring for the, the people, but there was a chance that we weren't going to make it here because of our daughter's graduation. Yeah, both of us have daughters graduating this year, and but it, as it worked out, they managed to schedule their graduation around our need to go to Norway. So essentially, we're both here. We have two podcasts on the floor, and it's great. So we're going to be lobbing uh, tomatoes over the wall at them. I see no way we don't get through this week without a crossover show involving a lot of scotch between Herding Code and .NET Rocks. I, I agree. And, you know, the best part about this is that they're heckling us as we're talking right here. So, I think those are obscene gestures, actually. Wow. Okay. Did you just do that? Really? <laughs> this is video. We can- <laughs> All right. Well, John Skeet's coming up in a minute, but uh, first we should start off with Better Know Framework. All right, what do you got? That music is bad, even in Norway. It's not bad. It's great music. So in honor of our esteemed guest, Mr. Skeet, I went looking for some stuff related to tasks and async and all of that. We used to call it the Task Parallel Library. Now we just call it .NET. And uh, in particular, exception handling, because exception handling, when you have you know parallels, code, can be tricky. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, there's this great uh, explanation of sort of getting started with the TPL, which is an older one, but it's cool still. And that's at tinyurl.com slash TPL exceptions. And so, this is at codeproject.com. And the whole idea with, uh, and John will talk a little bit more about this coming up, but the whole idea with the exceptions is that you have to observe them in order for them to be called. An exception is observable if you call wait or result on it. And then you check the aggregate exception, which has a uh, collection called inner exceptions. Wow, okay, because it could be quite a few of them. Yeah, there could be quite a few. And so there's a way to do it with try-catch, and then there's a way to do it, you know, just uh, without a try-catch. But it's, it's kind of difficult to do. And so this article goes, you know, it's a good start. And we'll talk to uh, Mr. Skeet a little bit more about that. But I thought it was a good read. And again, that's at tinyurl.com slash TPL exceptions. Know it, learn it, love it. Hey, Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 878. And that's the one we did with James Kovacs. We're talking about programming JavaScript functionally. 
which was an interesting idea all by itself. And Nick Miller picked up on something which surprised me. He says, Richard, you made some comments on F-sharp in this show that made me think you've changed your opinion of F-sharp over the last couple of years. I'm keen to understand why. I know you think deeply about these things and your opinions influence where I choose to invest my learning time. A couple of years ago, I recall you saying something to the effect of F-sharp is better than C-sharp for many cases, but it's not so much better that a general purpose C-sharp developer should learn it. Am I right that this was your view? Has it changed and why? And that's from Nick Miller. Uh, Nick, my views have changed somewhat, but I, I don't think I ever took that position. F-sharp to me seemed like a niche language that was made into a general purpose language, and it just spoke to this whole idea of, is functional programming a better way to go? And I bet we're going to talk about that for the most of an hour now, so we'll get back to that. Uh, and there's a reason why we don't make blanket statements like we like this and we don't like that and this is good and this is not good. That's why we do an hour show on the subject. So. Yeah, and I, so I suspect we may have had a guest on that said something along those lines. That seems more likely to me. But I will tell you one thing that has changed for me. One of the things that I was interested in in the context of F-sharp and functional programming in general was this ability to do parallel programming more easily which I think we are seeing. The real issue that I'm running into in the field is it seems to be a solution looking for a problem. That there's a relatively few programming problems these days that really need massive parallelism. That general computing doesn't need massive parallelism. And so what's the point? What are we pursuing there? For the special cases, for the SQL servers of the world, that's fine. You know, you, or, you know, even getting into ray tracing and, and uh, musical analysis, stuff that naturally. Aggregation. Yeah. Th- those are tasks meant for parallelism and the smart parallel people can do them. But for routine programming, I'm just not seeing it. Nobody seems to be missing it. And bit by bit, parallelism is being driven more and more into the operating system so that we as programmers don't have to think about it at all. Well said, sir. Uh, uh, Nick, thanks so much for your comments. Really appreciate them. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, such as those that appear on this show. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a wide range of topics, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack, including lots of parallelism stuff. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let us welcome back to the show Mr. John Skeet. John is a Java developer for Google in London, but he plays with C-sharp somewhat obsessively in his free time. He can be seen speaking at conferences worldwide as well. John is the number one contributor to Stack Overflow. Welcome back, Mr. Skeet. Hey, good to be back. Great to have you here. So what did you think of uh, the sort of the... First of all, let's talk about the... the the guy who wrote the, the F-sharp stuff? The F-sharp <clears throat> stuff. So this is embarrassing for me um, because I have my name on a book which is primarily about F-sharp, uh, real-world functional, progr- functional programming, yeah. um, primarily by a guy called Tomasz Petrzek, who knows loads of stuff about functional programming. Yep. And I kind of helped along a bit by saying, well, the C-sharp code you've given here isn't what I'd have done, and this is how you could write some C-sharp more functionally and things. And Thomas um, is somebody we have had on the yeah, show before. He is he's amazingly brilliant. Great guy. Great guy. Brilliant. But I don't know F-sharp. <laughs> it's terrible. It's really embarrassing. But I do think F-sharp is a good language. The little bit that I have learned um, is enough to let me know it's a good language to learn so that you can write better C-sharp. 
you, you know, there's something I didn't bring up in my reply to Nick, but it's certainly a, a context to think on it, which is, and it comes back to the show we did, programming JavaScript functionally. Writing functional C-sharp yeah. is easily doable, too. I think F-sharp got us thinking functionally. Right. And now we're starting to take those best bits and apply them in other languages. And annoyingly, there are bits of C-sharp which are um, anti-functional. So there are, <laughs> there are really easy ways of... Uh, there's object initializers and collection initializers mm -hmm. which are designed for mutability. Yes. It's the opposite of what, what we want. And it's really good to see. I don't know whether you've already done a better framework on it, but you should really do one on the uh, immutable collections yeah. that Microsoft's got coming out. Um, so there's, there's a NuGet package for them. You can download and get them. It's really good to see that immutability is definitely in the mind of the BCL developers. Yeah. Um, but we need better C sharp support for it. But yeah, thinking functionally, Link is all about thinking functionally. And Link has really transformed the way that C sharp developers sure. deal with data. Um, I will take issue somewhat with what you're saying about parallelism, though, not because I think parallelism is hugely important to everyone. Mm -hmm. I think almost everyone needs some parallelism. Certainly, if you're doing client-side apps, you're going to be doing things in the background. Right. But it's actually it's sort of more two -thread about asynchrony model. rather yeah. than parallelism. I totally agree. And well, that's are, why he was talking about massive parallelism. It's yeah. sort of a niche thing. But F-sharp gave us a way of doing async flows, as well as, obviously, if you're thinking functionally, you've got immutability, that helps for parallelism. Mm -hmm. But it also gave async flows, which are a bit different to async await in C-sharp, but it would be pointless to um, pretend that the C-sharp designers didn't look at F-sharp and say, I want some of that. And when you're talking about async flows, you're talking about sort of workflow things, right? Where you do X and then that finishes and then you do these three things and then those finish and then you do yeah, these five I, I, things. You, you can express in a little bit like a query expression in Link, mm -hmm. um, but you can express the same sort of thing as an async expression within F-sharp. Yeah. Um, you know, as I say, I don't know F-sharp at all well, but uh, sure. the bit that I've seen was a nice language way of supporting that sort of monad of asynchrony uh, or co-monad or something like that. Yeah, whatever the exact terms, crazy terms confused are. There, all that me. governs in yeah, there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but basically language support, or it's not even baked into the language so much as the language gives you the flexibility to build that sort of thing. And it already comes with some, uh, you know, a built in version to support asynchrony. So I think it is important in that sense. And the number of features that F sharp has effectively provoked in C sharp makes it an important language as a precursor. And I think in the same way as you, know, you learn F-sharp so that you can write better C-sharp. Yeah, no, I, I wonder if we're going to end up in the same boat we are with stuff like uh, 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 SQL CLR. You know, I, I came to appreciate historically that the process of putting .NET into SQL Server made .NET dramatically better. Right. That's why .NET 2.0 was as good as it, it was. It was hardened all over the place. It, yeah, it they was just kicked the isolated snot out of it. And, yeah. But you would almost never use SQL CLR. Like that was a, the, the process was a good thing, but the utilization was not necessarily a good thing. Possibly. I, you know, the bizarre thing is I'm a C-sharp expert to right. some extent, but I don't use it professionally. You know, I, right, right. I haven't written a, a professional fun stuff. Yeah, exactly. The research. So I'm a class library guy. Um, <laughs> I, if you look at UIs that I write, you wouldn't want to use them. Um, you know, I don't do heavy SQL stuff. It's, so what about exception handling? I mean, oh. let's let, set aside the whole parallel exception handling yep. or the async. Except, 
exception handling in general is sort of in the bane of the programmer's existence. It's one of those things we still haven't got right. So there are various things that we are still miles away from having sorted. You know, we've things like asynchrony looking much better, parallelism yeah. looking much better. Right. Where are we on installation in general? You know, Nougat's a great step forward for .NET. Yes. Things are there's progress. But installation in general in computing is still a bit of a mess. Yeah. Internationalization is still a complete mess. Yeah. And so is error handling. I think it's a lot of that. It's too hard to do right. Well, and a lot of it comes down to the culture that we've been handed, right? I mean, if you think about Windows developers, we're used to general protection fault. We're used to these crazy exceptions coming from Windows and from our Windows apps right. that don't mean anything at all, you know, and, and it goes on to this day. And it's you fundamentally know, hard, you know, if you think right. that at any point, pretty much anything can happen to your app. Right. Then writing robust code and knowing which errors you should be expecting and handling right. versus those that you just hold up your hands and say, do you know what? Bang. I, I'm dead. Well, and then especially in a sort of a service level of uh, a service way of thinking, you know, if, if an exception happens, oh, well, there may be some temporal glitch or whatever. I should just wait a bit. And try Sometimes. it again. Yeah. I mean, you know, those, yeah. instead of going, Oh my God, throw up my hands and exception, server error, database, not But found. at the same time, in some right. cases, that is exactly what you want to do. It gets weirder when you're on, uh, the kind of services I do write professionally. Yeah. Um, and just to emphasize, I'm not speaking on behalf of Google. Never um, do. Never do. <laughs> um, but you know, I write programs that run on hundreds of servers. And sometimes, if a server is having trouble, the right thing to do is just kill it. Yeah. Uh, so if I can't talk to some storage somewhere, then maybe that process should just die. On the other hand, if all the processes are having problems talking to the same storage, you don't really want everything to go down at the same time. But is that something that you would program that logic into your oh, app as well? Or are just you built for it? Yeah. It's, there's. Yeah, I, I'm not going to go into the the internals of of keeping what things I'm saying alive. Is so but the decision to terminate something usually exists outside of your, well, your service, but, but you can decide what's important, um, and that's where error handling is difficult mm. to work out what is important to you, to your service, what is absolutely fundamentally crucial that it's got to be alive, otherwise I'm pointless. Versus, okay, I may be able to handle some kind of requests, but not others. It's the, the whole thing of you're out of paper versus this isn't going to work, and I'm really sorry about right. that. Yeah. yeah. I think in a, in a service-oriented world, you know, decisions about what to do about exceptions, sometimes you could ship those off to a totally different service, mm -hmm. right? You know, which is looking at the logic of what happened with this, what happened with that, do some analysis, and then figure out, spin another thing up, ter terminate this one, or, you know, check this, or send an email out to this guy, or whatever. And we certainly think about... Anything can go wrong at any time. You know, I assume that um, my machine could blow up at any point. Right. And you know, maybe I can't handle that perfectly, but I want to handle it as well as I can. And that should be part of design if you're writing a hardened service. A lot of the time, you're not. It's you know, scaling mm. horizontally, scaling massively. Mm. A lot of the time, that's really not necessary for most developers. Um, it, it's great if... If you're in the situation where you need it, it's an interesting problem to think about, yeah. but it's not always the kind of thing to think yeah, about. Yeah, I think most of the time, other than just saying it, that didn't work out, you know, we, we failed. There's not much more to say. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, 
that's my old line of my first programming environment was a Dartmouth basic with three error messages, what, how, and sorry. Right? <laughs> and so services saying sorry is sort of the sum total of what you need to say. Yeah, well, as far as the user's concerned, yeah, as far they, as the user's they concerned, really have no idea what's going on behind the scenes and shouldn't. It's but, you know, I, to this day, I see error messages presented to the user that have no business going to the user, you know. Absolutely. Programmers and, think that all users are programmers sometimes. Right. I, and I've seen advice in books saying, you know, you should make sure that your exception messages are translatable so that they can be shown to end users. Whoa, if I'm writing an exception message, that's aimed at a developer. Yeah. And I think the level of um, effort that needs to go into actually getting exceptions translatable as well as translated far outweighs the vast majority of codes. You know, it probably makes sense for the .NET framework to translate its exception messages. But your vast majority of open source projects, they're not going to, and it would be a yeah. waste of their time to do so. All right, let's talk about in the async world, what okay. are the particular challenges of handling exceptions and doing anything decent with them? So one thing is uh, life has changed. Since mm -hmm. the, the first version of TPL in .NET 4, um, things have changed somewhat, and that's partly due to the async and await things. So you mentioned observing exceptions. Back in .NET 4, unless you turned it off or handled something differently, um, if there was an exception and you didn't take note of it, then when the finalizer ran for that exception, that aggregate exception, it would go, whoa, something's wrong, you haven't noticed, I'm going to explode. The whole yeah. process would die. Ah! Yeah. Um, and that has changed. Um, Thank so, God. Well, sort of. This is where there is healthy debate. Um, I've read plenty of advice saying, whatever you do, make sure that you always do something to all the tasks that you create so that any exceptions will be shown. Right. And sometimes that that's right, yeah, but... It doesn't seem uh, right. I, uh, I want my exceptions captured, right. logged somewhere. Logged, yeah. Uh, shown? Well, uh, no, yeah, observed. So okay. you may not even want to observe every exception. Say I've got... Uh, some web service mm -hmm. and it already has its own logging on the client side yep. and so if anything goes wrong i know it will be logged and it will throw an exception right okay i don't need to log that exception twice okay i need to if it's vital that i get the result from that web service call and that it's a success one mm -hmm. then yes i definitely want to catch that right. exception but otherwise i may not need to right. example if i'm doing uh, calls in parallel. So say I've got five different stock services, or maybe it's the same stock, stock service on five different computers, um, and I want to do something as soon as a majority have returned the same result. Okay, it's the kind of thing that's actually relatively easy to build, this sort of majority voting idea. You can build that into async and C Sharp 5 sure. and get a really nice interface. I don't care whether the other two have failed or not. Right. Other than I, I probably want it logged somewhere. Maybe. You want to know that it failed, but you don't care well, why. Or my, my client code probably doesn't need to know. Right. I would like it to be logged somewhere so that if I'm finding that happens a lot, I can tend to it. Yeah, but it doesn't it's affect. Diagnosis. It's about diagnosis in some cases, but it doesn't affect what the rest of the program is going to do. Right. So there are people who will say you should always make sure that you observe all the tasks, and there are others that say in some cases you really don't care. Mm -hmm. But the, the point about there being multiple exceptions that can be thrown um, is an important one that async sort of fudges over a little bit. Hmm. And it's something that you need to... It's one of these leaky abstractions. Right. 
does a task represent one thing happening that can fail or succeed, or does it represent multiple things happening? Ah, I see. Well, and you it know, can it can both. represent both. Can yes. It? Yeah. So you've got something like task when all, which uh, returns a task which will complete when all of the tasks you give it have completed. Right. And that will, it, it's nice, it will throw an aggregate exception containing all the exceptions that were thrown by the sort of child tasks, if they are, but it's one task with multiple things. Right. Um, in other cases, you know that there's only going to be one exception, and that's actually the normal case. You tend ah, sure. to know when you're doing multiple things. Yeah. Um, and the tricky bit is that when you await a task in C-sharp 5, if there are multiple exceptions, then only the first one gets thrown back to you. Right. So there, there's this unwrapping automatically of aggregate exception, which is probably what you want. Otherwise, you would always have to catch aggregate, aggregate exception, mm -hmm. always flatten it, find out whether yeah. it actually contains... You know, suppose so you're, you're reading it, from a file, yeah. you know that an IO exception could happen. Yeah. So in normal synchronous code, you would try to do stuff and catch IO exception. And the way that async has been designed in C-sharp 5 encourages you to write asynchronous code that looks like synchronous code. Right. So you should be catching I.O. exception. And it makes that work. So long as it's the first exception that's thrown. Right, sure. <laughs> okay. so, and you want to know what all the other ones are, but you don't need to catch them all. Potentially. So in some cases, you do want to catch them all um, and examine them all. And you know, if any of them are exception x then die otherwise keep going in some different ways so okay, sure. there are ways of unwrapping um to, sorry preventing the unwrapping yep. that c sharp does by effectively wrapping one aggregate exception right. in another and then when it takes one level of wrapping paper off you've still got aggregate exception <laughs> and you can do that fairly easily just as a little so extension the inner exceptions can also be aggregate exceptions that have more inner right. exceptions and so if you if you create one aggregate exception that contains just an aggregate exception then the normal handling of uh, of task will unwrap the original aggregate exception leave you the aggregate exception that contains all your real exceptions underneath right. so that's all doable or usually you're using task when all and you could just catch exception, and if anything happened, you probably want to look at each of the tasks and find out which succeeded and sure. which, which failed. So, yeah, there are definitely different ways to think about um, exceptions in an asynchronous world. But really, I, I don't think we're good at thinking about them in a synchronous world. No, and that was my next point, was that, you know, what if you're used to doing parallel programming without this sort of async await, you know, sort of top-down mm -hmm. approach? And you can't catch exceptions because things are like happening all the time. You have to just periodically poll and examine to see if they well, happen. or you can continue with you can do basically what async is all about, just attaching continuations. Yeah, it's saying when this task has finished, yeah. continue with this code. Right, and um, you get more fine grained support within the TPL itself, so you can say continue with this code if anything's gone wrong. Continue right, sure. with this code on success. So if you do want to add logging to all tasks and then not care about them later, you could always just call task.continue with um, task continuation options on faulted or whatever it is um, and have some logging. And you could easily write that as an extension method, task.log exceptions. Mm -hmm. Easy. Um, but yeah, you... you you can attach things, but you either need to poll or you need to attach those continuations. Yeah. It is just a different way of thinking. And, you know, you, I, I didn't mention in that whole process of 
you know, looking at the aggregate exception, that you want to check the is faulted Boolean to see if a task returned because of an exception or not. Right. That's just a little detail that we sometimes so, miss. Well, you can do that or you can use the result property, which will throw an exception if the task is faulted. Right. Um, assuming you've got a task of T. Um, there's another thing to think about in terms of writing asynchronous methods, which is parameter validation, argument validation, mm -hmm. um, or anything that you want to happen synchronously. So generally, if I do something wrong, if I call a method and pass in null for a parameter that shouldn't be null, I personally would rather that went bang immediately. And th this actually goes back to um, the iterator block support back in C-sharp 2. It's exactly the same problem. Um, so basically, if you have, su suppose you call um, select on a null data source or with a null projection mm -hmm. um, in link, it will go bang immediately. It doesn't wait until you start trying to iterate. No, null's a null. A null null's a null. We know this is never going to succeed. Yeah. Why are you waiting to tell me? And the same um, is what I think you should do in asynchronous methods. But it does mean you've got to handle them in the same way as you would um, iterator blocks. You typically need to divide your method in half. Mm -hmm. Because if you just write, if foo equals null, throw new argument null exception, mm -hmm. in an async method, that exception will only be thrown when, uh, or will only be observable when someone waits for the task or you know, asks the return task what its status is. Right. Whereas you probably want it to throw immediately, not even return a task. Mm -hmm. So instead you write one method that does the validation and then just calls return and then calls the async method. Right. So okay. you have a non-async method that calls an async method and just returns the task returned. Is all this on your blog somewhere? Uh, <laughs> I think it's, it, it's somewhere. It's hard to talk about it's, code, especially <laughs> async code. Right? It's it certainly, um, and just to give a bit of a plug, it's certainly in the new version of C Sharp in Depth, <laughs> uh, which is coming to bookstores near you very soon, honestly. It's the oh, awesome. last stages of, uh, of copy editing and things. So, And these are advances that came out of .NET 4.5. For, it's really TPL 2.0. Well, so TPL has been, um, I think a lot of work's gone under the hood right. to making it much more efficient. Mm -hmm. The efficiencies, if you look at the crazy, crazy code that the C-sharp compiler generates for you, mm -hmm. it is just horrible and <laughs> amazing at the same time. So it generates all these structs that implement an interface and they mutate, you know, I don't like mutable structs but the compiler generates them for me and passes all kinds of things by reference so that it gets boxed exactly once. And, oh, wow, it's just trying to understand what the heck is going on. You wouldn't is, want to write this stuff. You wouldn't, uh, not unless well, you're kind of you crazy. Would. Yeah, yeah. No, I uh, seem to remember we have done exactly I, that exercise. Yeah, I'm not so sure I would, in but a I hotel know you room would. a couple of years ago. That's right. Um, and, yeah, what we're of, speaking about is John, John unraveled the, uh, the async, the await keyword, mm -hmm. essentially saying, now... I didn't write this, but if I was going <laughs> yeah. to, this is how I would do it. it was so, great. yeah, so the, there's part of, part of C Sharp 5 is to do with the compiler support, and part is to do with the library support of, there are a few types that it relies on. Right. So basically I looked at, if we weren't to use .NET 4.5, and we didn't have the extra library, so for a while, the C Sharp 5 um, CTP came with an extra little library. I can't even remember what it's called yeah, now. Right. Um, but you didn't have to reference that. You could just write your own version. <laughs> sure. So I did that and decompiled what the C-sharp compiler was doing because all it does is it 
all it does. It generates a state machine for you. Mm-hmm. And it's insanely complicated and you don't want to be doing this by hand. <laughs> but I think it's really useful to see what it's doing for you behind the scenes. Because it's not magic. Right. It all follows rules. And it's useful to understand those rules and see what's happening. Oh, that show, those DNR TV shows we did were definitely like, you know, what were the, the shows that were popular in the 90s where they exposed magicians and illusionists, mm-hmm. you know, where the, it's they, exactly they, they showed the magic behind yeah. it or the reality and, behind the magic. And I, I love magic so long as I know what's going on behind it Absolutely. at the same time, um, at least in code. For, for stage magic, I really don't want to know. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's if you're going to use a feature, you ought to understand a bit about what's going on behind the scenes i think yeah especially something that's going to take such a big dependency on your app overall if you start yeah. getting serious about yeah uh, I, you, you need to understand that until you hit the first await and not necessarily just the first await mm-hmm. maybe the second or third depending on exactly what's going on this code is running synchronously right so you've got to understand it's not starting a new thread i when i give talks about async people are really confused about the relationship between asynchrony, asynchrony and threading. Right, and parallelism. Yeah, because we sort of think about them as the same thing. And they're not at and all. And they're not at all, no. no. Um, it's a whole different execution model even before you think about threads. And part of it is um, async, the implementation of async works nicely with threads. Mm-hmm. So yes, you will come back to the UI thread just automatically and magically. Yeah. But that's a sort of a second step beyond the fundamentals of asynchrony, which are just start this and continue with this code when you're done, rather than start this and I will wait and then execute some more code when you're done, which are subtly different when when just said like that, but completely different in terms of actual code. (laughs) Well, hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, It must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to unwrap a bag of state bags. Uh, what is the state of your bag? Oh, yeah, uh, talk about that. That sounds that sounds like a political problem. Yeah, state bag. No, of course it's it's time to announce the winner of a uh, Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection, and we give away one of these every show to a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who wins, I need to tell you that Just Mock by Telerik is a Visual Studio extension that isolates dependencies in code. This complete mocking framework allows for elevated mocking, auto-mocking, static mocking, and more. JustMock follows the arrange, act, assert pattern, making testing complex scenarios easier than ever. And it integrates seamlessly with Visual Studio 2012. Mock anything with ease. Simplify unit testing with JustMock. Download a free 30-day trial of JustMock at Telerik.com slash JustMockDNR. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Awesome. So who's our winner? Well, today's winner is, get our clappers. You got our clappers ready? I'm ready. It's Ben Becker from Fishers, Indiana. Hooray! Golf Hooray! clap for Ben. Obnoxious claps. Obnoxious claps. I think the real winner is whoever's got cookies around here. There's an amazing smell of cookies coming from uh, somewhere. Yeah, that's right. Or what do you so call I, them we're wrapping up, right? We're, we're finished. I, I want some cookies. <laughs> Oh, wait a minute. Biscuits, I think they're called in your neck of the woods, right? No. No? No, these are cookies. These smell like real cookies. Cookies. All right. Well, anyway, uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, we just gave away a DevCraft Complete Collection. That's everything that Telerik does in one box. And uh, we give away one every show. Every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology. 
Indeed. And uh, this past December, it was Rob Corbett's turn to win, and he won a Win8 Touch and Connect development environment with dual screens and a big machine. And uh, he's been having a good time with it. Designed by Richard Campbell. And uh, and you, you found a local guy in Ontario. Yeah, well, he's out of Ottawa. So Ottawa. I knew that, you know, when you're dealing with a computer, sometimes stuff breaks, so we better get good warranty support. And so we found a local producer to put it together for him. And sure enough, he did have a problem with it. But it all he sent us a video of it smoking. It was <laughs> Not a good sign. It was a smoking fast machine, literally. <laughs> so if you want to join the fan club, go to .nerox.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members, and you two could win. And with that, let's ask our guests. Mr. Skeet, if you had $5,000 to spend on toys, what would you get? Oh, Technology toys. Technology toys. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That makes it harder. Um, the trouble is I think I'm, I'm kind of good at the moment. I, I have a nice 27-inch <laughs> uh, monitor at home that I use and love. Yeah. Um, and enough KVMs and whatever so I can... Uh, put my work laptop, home laptops, and things. Um, I've been Branching loving. I, I've new. got a. I've got a ThinkPad at the moment that is just gorgeous. It's it's taken over as a. It was meant to be just a small, new little little is toy that I take. It's not a carbon. It's a, a ThinkPad twist. Oh, a twist. Uh, okay, that's great. Little which machine. is which is cool. Um, I know what you can get. A thousand hours of babysitting. Oh. <laughs> I'm struggling to see how that's technical, but that would be awesome. Well, you, <laughs> enough Lego Mindstorms. I've seen your boys in action. Oh, yeah, yep. So, so our eldest does have Lego Mindstorms, and yep. we're, we're teaching him Lure at the moment. I'm hoping at some point that, uh, that I can go to a conference and take Tom, and we can do a talk together. I also kind of think that awesome. a 3D printer would be a big hit in your house, mm. too. Well, we have 3D printers at work. Yeah. Um, and I have a colleague who's very keen on them and has one at home. So, you know, I can do 3D printing. We haven't got space for 3D printing. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. that's one of the big problems. It, it's a bigger thing than you think. And it's smelly, too. I mean, you are melting plastic with right. it. It needs to be vented. Yeah. But I think with all those boys and all the, the imagination that goes on, I mean, I've been witness to the chaos, my friend. <laughs> Uh, they would probably want to create things all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, my, my eldest, who I'm teaching Lua, is massively into Minecraft. Massively. Oh, yeah. And this is programming. He is doing programming. Oh, he's doing it with blocks. But, you know, he's saying, right, okay, the, uh, the sewage comes over here. It's transformed into compost. I then send it over here. It then grows more grass and you know, all kinds of stuff. He is, he is programming visually. And oh, it's just cool. a matter of turning that into text. And what did you say the language is there? That Lua. Lua. And we chose that because it's something that there are Minecraft mods that let you use Lua to then program Minecraft. And just one quick thing. How do you spell that? L-U-A. L-U-A, Lua. It's a little scripting language. Um, awesome. Yeah, we, we tried Python. Didn't get very far with Python. Not sure why, particularly. It partly, yeah, he was only seven at the time. He's now nine. And, and uh, just the other day, I was trying to describe the difference between variables, objects, and references, yeah. which I struggle to describe to professional developers even yeah. today. Um, so it'll be interesting to see to what extent that, that, uh, I have a really great launched. metaphor for dealing with references versus, uh, you know, versus static objects, mm -hmm. um, shortcuts on the desktop, especially for kids. You know, if they know what a shortcut is, like you could create a text file and put it yep. on a desktop and you create a shortcut to it and then show, you know, how it changes when you change the original. Well, I typically use a, a real-world thing of, imagine a variable as a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. I can write my house address on a piece of paper mm -hmm. and give it to both of you. Yeah. And then if one of you goes and paints my front door green, 
yeah. of my house. The house is the object. Yeah. The address is the reference. Yeah. The piece of paper is the variable. Yeah. If one of you paints the front door green and the other one goes to it, they mm. will see a green front door. And right. if you cross out my address and write a different address, that doesn't change my house at all. Sure. And it doesn't change the address on the other piece of paper. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, really interesting. It, the teaching, you know, we've been programming so long, it's, it's hard to remember not knowing those things. I vaguely remember that light bulb going on. Yeah. It was in about 95. I'd been using Java for a while and not quite got the difference. Right. And the trouble is, as soon as you do get the difference, all kinds of other things make so much more right, sense. Exactly. And my mantra of uh, parameters are passed by value by default in C Sharp. Mm -hmm. Just today, I was looking, I, this makes me really sad. I was looking at a uh, Visual Studio 2012 book, so really recent, mm -hmm. and it was saying C Sharp passes value types by value and reference types by reference by default. No, no. everything's by value, but the value of the variable is the reference. Right. It's not the object. You don't have a, a piece of paper yeah. with a house on it. You have the address of the house. I actually <sighs> had the, I, I, when I taught, I banged that drum very hard. Good, good, good. That, you know, just because it's by val, because the object is a reference type, you're passing it. Yeah. You're passing the reference. And, and people say, oh, you're, you're just being too pedantic. It doesn't matter. No, it, it matters really does absolutely. Matter. And you can show that using ref with a reference type parameter still makes a difference. Right. It changes everything. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I don't understand the, it's just semantics. Well, everything's semantics. Right, everything yeah. is, yeah. We are communicating. It's all about meaning. That's semantics. So, John, tell us about no to time. This is a, something that you're working on? Yeah. So, actually, this, this ties in very well with semantics really matter. Um, date and times are really hard to work with uh, in general. I hate okay. dates. It's, it's just I a horrible... Date math. I yeah. hate date subtraction. It's inherently tricky, and we Sucks. make life much worse for ourselves using... In Java, there's Java Util Calendar and Java Util Date, both of which are horribly broken. Yeah. in terms of API design. And in .NET, we have date time, which looks a lot better. It's really easy to use, badly. Yeah. So there is no type that represents, I've just got a date. I haven't got a time, I've just got a date. Right. And there's no type that represents, I've got a time of day, but no date. Right. Um, there's nothing to, you know, there's, there's one type for local date time and yep. UTC date time. We now have date time offset, which helps. Mm -hmm. But it's not enough. So a while ago, I and started that, that, porting. That problem is a real problem, especially when oh. you're on the server. Yeah. And you're trying to deal with time zones of the where the server right. is versus where the person is. Yep. And, and it's all Ask messy. Ask me how I know. <laughs> Presumably, you have run into this as real oh, problems. Yeah. And it just, yeah. it's so frustrating to try yeah. to debug. Um, and .NET has this horrible tendency to use the system local time zone right. silently. Yeah. So that's one of one of my main design points in Node Time is we do default to using the ISO eight six zero one calendar system, mm -hmm. but that's the only default we use. If we're going to use the current culture for anything, you're going to tell us to do that. Right. Uh, if if you want to use the system default time zone, you're going to tell us to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and we separate various. There are loads of different types of data out there, and we separate them all out. Um, so yeah, that's one of the things I'm doing at NDC. Uh, we've got a bit of a bit of code in there that's still horrible because it was originally a port of there's a, a library called Joda Time in Java, which is a much better date and time library for Java. For Java, so I started porting that and then changed the public API. Of now, it. How do you spell Noda Time? So Noda Time is N O D A Time. Okay, um, and I'll give you links later on. Sure. And Joda Time is the same, just with a J, J instead of an N. Yeah. Um, and one of the Nasty bits of code in Joda time is the calendar system handling 
was originally, I think it's an inheritance hierarchy seven or eight levels deep, okay. um, which calls virtual methods in the constructor, and it's all hideous. So hmm. I really needed a big block of time to refactor that. I thought the only time I get big blocks of time that I can do coding is if I'm at a conference. And if I'm going to be coding at a conference, I might as well be doing it on stage. So I've got three <laughs> sessions where I'm just refactoring the heck out of this bit of node time. Uh, just like, I've no I idea how I would love to go. see that. Well, it's that on in be, like, you know, in, that, in an hour. It's so. going to be like johnskeetsbrain.com. It's going to be quite bizarre. Yeah, it really is. Well, it's real work at real time, right? It's, um, I, I look at the schedule at NBC here. It looked like there was a John Skeet track. I, almost. So I've got sort of six <laughs> things I'm doing. Yeah. Which I think is slightly more even than my first year here oh, where I man. started with two and ended with five. So, actually, I want to jump all the way back to our original conversation here. The parallelism conversation is an interesting one because it just, you know, you mentioned this idea of, okay, well, the two-thread model, foreground, background, maybe a couple of backgrounds. Right. But or maybe uh, doing something but not using any threads for it. Yeah. If I'm calling a web service, I don't need a thread for that. I can just start something happening and then go back into the UI thread when it's finished. Yeah, and, and, and you're right. I should never say thread. Like we, because that that's an artificial construct all by itself. Absolutely, right? yes. It, you this, can be doing multiple things yeah, without having time, multiple threads. Without having yeah. multiple threads, and in a web service connected world, that is almost the default position, it's the norm. Yeah, absolutely. You think uh, people really need to go back and understand the sort of message pump nature of how the UI works in Windows in order oh, to? If get- you don't understand the message pump nature of Windows, then. Uh, how are you programming at all for right. UIs? I mean, what, like, if, you're, Richard, if you're just being a web dev, then it probably yeah. doesn't matter until you've got JavaScript that's working in the same way, I right. guess. You know, I'm not a web dev. I right. don't trust anything. I say. Well, we talk about the UI thread. Yeah. Right? That and is a real thread, and you need to understand that. Yeah. Uh, but just because you've only got one UI thread and may only have one thread in your app, at least you know, aside from garbage collection and finalizer threads and whatever, if you've only got one thread that you're controlling, that doesn't mean you're only doing one thing at, the, at right. a time. Well, you know, the, even the UI thread, like, I know we need to know that, but I think it's because we're old. Mm. Like, if you are starting in .NET today, yeah. do you even really need to know that? I mean, we've had all the yeah. experiences of spawning our own threads and make sure you get back to the UI thread, da 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 Would anybody do that today, coming into .NET clean, without all that baggage? Uh, so they may well use background worker. Mm-hmm. Um if they were doing the right thing to start with, then they'd probably use tasks instead, and yeah. then they can async. Like, if you're learning this from scratch, you'd live in tasks the whole time. So you've got to understand why you need to do this in the first place. Why is it that if I do a big call just directly, that hangs the UI? Right. Well, you've got to understand that something's got to be reacting to events. Yes. Um, fundamentally, the event-driven way of things has to be mapped onto... a thread-driven way of doing things, and you need to understand how that works. Yeah, I would also think that you would async and await everything by reflex, you know, as a, as a new developer being educated, that I Which want you to do this Which is an interesting idea. You know, if you were starting right. a new language today, would you have synchronous calls at all? Well, and wanna, you probably would, to be honest, but it's an interesting <laughs> thought experiment. I, w- I want to go back to what we were talking about, the message pump, because, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we should discuss that a little bit. And it, as far as what I understand from my Win32 days is that there's a tight loop in Windows. Right. And it is essentially dispatching messages. You know, it's looking at the mouse, right? And when the mouse, for example, goes over a window, it dispatches a message to that window. 
Yep. And it's in a loop. So this isn't like a whole it's, multi-threaded it's thing. It's in a loop with some, it's still interrupt driven in terms of this isn't a tight loop that is going to peg your CPU. Sure. But it is just a loop that's saying, right, give, give me the next message and I will do whatever I need to with it. Right. It, it's just that. Um, and the messages can build up and right. it just goes so, through. So as I was saying, when you move over a window that is registered with a handle, yep. then uh, a message is sent to that window, hey, the mouse is over you here, the coordinates and stuff. Right. That would translate into a mouse move event, Absolutely. for example. Yep. But you're still, it's still all happening on that one same thread. But, but because it's of this message system, this is sort of an attempt to do sort of asynchronous multiple windows and all of them working at the same time with one thread. Right, absolutely. And that's what's um, great about it. And it's it's one thread for each application mm-hmm. or you know potentially you can have separate threads for different windows um but typically you don't. Right. Um so yeah there, there's something deep in Win32 right. um that is dispatching things to the right process but then that's got its own loop right. um to to say right you need to fire a mouse move event and what amazes me is you you think of I'm moving a mouse, that's going to generate thousands of events. Right. That computers are fast enough that that incredibly wasteful thing to do yes. is efficient and we see a smooth... Yeah, the only time we've flow. ever cared about that was when we tried to catch all those messages, say, in JavaScript. Right. And <laughs> I'm going to log everything that happens. Yeah, just... <laughs> yeah. You don't want to know. No. Well, and that gets back to handlers, right? If there's no handlers to a mouse move message... It, what happens? It needs to be dropped quickly and efficiently. Basically, <laughs> if an event fires, that's there's the no thing. one there to catch it. Did it really exist? Is that well, what you said? yeah, that's basically <laughs> what I'm saying. Does the event actually fire? Uh, I think you'd need to talk about a specific level of abstraction to yeah, even work sure. that I out. I think you're right. Yeah. So I think the the way that events within um, WinForms works mm-hmm. is it doesn't have one variable. If you declare a, a field-like event in C-sharp, then that declares a variable for that event. Right. Um, and with the number of events there are in, in um, Windows Forms controls, you don't have a separate variable for each. Sure. You have an event handler collection or whatever it's called. Um, and typically and you, you can, don't, if the event is null, you're not going to call yeah, it. So, so you can easily find out there are no handlers for this. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing to call. So I will just drop quickly. And certainly at the Windows level, every message is sent. Yes. Where it's sunk is a different thing entirely. Uh, absolutely. So yeah, it is important that that bit of code is really efficient. Yeah. And you can see how that doesn't work. I remember uh, Java tried to do a, a Windows UI abstraction. You know, some of the first... Some of those first layers were really slow. And because right. they didn't have the, you know, they were sort of object-orientifying Well, and, and Java was slow back to start with. You know, before, yeah. did you ever do Java before JIT compilers came along? Oh, sure, yeah. I remember when you had to run a different binary or, or put on a flag saying, I want to JIT compile, please. Wow, look, it's almost fast. <laughs> um, but, you know, they were virtual machines. They called yeah, it that for um, a reason. They were genuine interpreters. And, you know, you could see the same thing in Mono. When Mono tried to do the Windows Forms stuff, mm-hmm. you know, the, it was really slow for that reason because you're, you're sort of building this object-oriented UI layer that really needs to be done at a lower level. But all the, the object-oriented layer is still there in WinForms. Mm-hmm. It's just that the JIT compiler is good enough. That is it, what I'm saying. Get, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so Win32 is posting these, these messages. Um, and I'll be honest, when I said you need to understand the message pump, 
Right. You don't need to know it at the LW param level or whatever sure, it is. Yeah. I can't remember these you things. You don't want to know it at no, that level. Absolutely. Um, I have done once I've uh, some insane situation where I was embedding one window within another and very deliberately doing stuff that I wouldn't normally do at all. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely horrible. Um, but you need to understand the, the fundamental concept of there is this loop. So, you know, imagine you're at a restaurant or yep. you, you're at a, a small bar and there's just one bartender right. um, who maybe has a load of sub bartenders who can start doing pouring cocktails or whatever. If you've got one customer who is arguing with that bartender, a queue will build up. Yep. So you need to understand that the message pump is like that. And if your, your arguing customer is a web service call that's just blocking saying, I'm not going to go away until I'm done, until I've got yep. my whatever, then the bar fills up with angry people. Uh, (laughs) So so as long as you understand it at that level of abstraction, that's kind of all you need. You don't need the fun, the really fine details for the most part, but yeah, you you need to understand that there is a UI thread and that threads exist and the difference between the event model paradigm and how it's implemented. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it it is baggage still really for, we're trying to move towards this new model where we don't need to worry about that quite as much. We're just not going to be able to get that. Uh, I don't think we'll ever not be able to yeah. worry. We just need, we can make it easier to manage. Well, this is a, you know, and you were hitting on this earlier, Richard. This is a really good question. If you're teaching somebody C sharp today mm-hmm. and they didn't have all this baggage, as Richard says, you know, how deep do you go? Oh. Like, you know what I'm saying? Because that's a, that's a really teaching C sharp from scratch. How, if you it were would learning be a C sharp, long time if you before were I went C on Jason can wait. <laughs> but if you were learning C sharp, and let's say you weren't doing Windows apps per right. se, let's say you were doing services, let's say you're doing server side stuff. So async and await in server side stuff can still be incredibly useful. Um, if you've got a thousand requests coming in per second and each of them needs to make some database request. You don't want a thousand threads. Mm-hmm. Just because, you know, say, the database or a web service call takes a second, you don't want a thread per request sitting there. So async await still makes a lot of sense server-side, mm-hmm. um, but it would be a long time. This is the trouble. C-sharp is now a big language. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot to learn. Um, so and I in was the fortunate. To, oh, the, the framework's enormous. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't want to start out with C-sharp today I see these books that try to cover the whole thing. Yeah. I'm thinking, no one... I don't know how long it would take if you were just saying, right, I'm going to learn C-sharp now yeah. and do nothing else. The amount of time and experience you would need to get before you really understood why it's important to have async and await yep. um, and why link query expressions make sense and where you should use those mm-hmm. rather than calling the extension methods and where delegates make sense... All of this is fabulously useful to reasonably experienced developers. Yeah. But if, I, if I'm teaching Tom C-sharp, which mm-hmm. I will at some point, it will be a long time before I even go to generics. Sure. Um, it's a hard concept. It is a hard concept, although it's now so fundamentally baked into everything we yes. do. So this is where if, if you're always going to be using async and await, you're in a bit of a catch-22. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't do anything... This is where I, I dislike the way most books start off with, here's a GUI talking to a database. Yeah. You're nowhere near <laughs> the state where people are going to understand what you're doing. Sure. They can see a pretty picture and think they're doing magic, right. but it is just magic rather than learning at that yeah, point. Yeah. So you know, I, I'm all for start with console apps, 
learn about classes, mm. learn about inheritance, learn about the core language topics, then probably generics because it is so important for yeah. all collections. But async and await, wow, that's that's tough unless you've got some experience. Right. And yeah, and you don't even know why it's important until you've yeah. learned a certain yeah. number of key things. Same thing with generics. Still, you've spent some time in types. Yeah. You're just not going to know why this is an issue. Yeah, and I think this is difficult. When I was growing up, uh, I had Spectrum Basic, which is a reasonably simple language. Mm-hmm. So it was a language that was at the same level that I was. Right. So it was suitable for me to learn. And I fear that we're going to make it hard for people to learn properly because people want mm-hmm. to do things that give some kind of visual result. And that's natural. So me putting the brakes on and saying, no, just do a console app. Right. I know that it's the best thing for them to actually make some progress. But I... Un- completely understand that it's frustrating for people who are used to other applications. Look at that GUI over there. Someone's only had a day and they've built that. Yeah, but they don't really understand it. Yeah, yeah. Um, And as soon as they run into a problem, they're not going to know. And I see this all the time on Stack Overflow. Mm -hmm. Right, I've built this application and I don't know why this is happening. Right, well, okay, you've got umpteen problems here because you've dived straight into it. Right. And you now don't know whether your problem is at a language level or at a core types level or at some library you're using. Mm -hmm. And until you can actually understand where your problem is, you can't even write a good question um, that tries to cover just that problem. John, when you're at Google, do you find yourself working uh, with, with less experienced developers trying to sort of explain to them what's going on in their app and helping them debug things and understand Rarely. things. One of the joys of working at Google is everyone is fiendishly smart. Right. You know, I'm an average kind of developer at Google. Um, <laughs> I work with some stunningly intelligent people. Um, yeah, we, we have interns who may be less experienced. I'm not saying I don't try to mentor people. Yeah. Um, and everyone mentors everyone else and explains why they're doing things. And often you'll get two people saying, well, I would do it this way because X. Right. I would do it this way because Y. And they're both useful things and both good ideas. And a good they discussion happen. to have. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so it's rarely at a language level, you know, this does this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's passed by value. But, it's, uh, but there, there's right. always more to learn. Sure. Well, John, what's next for you? Uh well, in terms of NDC, I'm talking about C Sharp and Node Time and doing something crazy with Rob Connery. We're not entirely sure what yet. Another sort Everything of with Rob just, Connery is crazy. Yeah, That's how well, that this works. is coding by the seat of my pants. We don't really know <laughs> what we're going to do, but it'll be fun. But nice. I've done all my slides for NDC, of which there are zero. Nice. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm just coding. <laughs> my favorite kind of talk. Yeah. I know I'm going to be having fun. Um, I don't know whether the audience will, but I certainly hope so. And what uh, about after NDC? After NDC, uh, more hacking on Node of Time, uh, C-Sharp in depth coming out soon. Hopefully, I will start writing a book on learning C-Sharp from scratch, which will wow. be challenging. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just keeping doing fun stuff, really. Excellent. John, thank you so much for My spending pleasure. time. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember... Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, 
video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a